chapter 26, page 346. Hey, when Bryce comes back in, will somebody uh, tell him to shut the door if he doesn't? I'll probably finish this before lunch, don't you think? I spew the berries from my mouth, wiping my tongue with the end of my shirt to make sure no juice remains. Peter pulls me to the lake where we both flush our mouths with water and then collapse into each other's arms. You didn't swallow any, I asked him. He shakes his head. You? Guess I'd be dead by now if I did, I say. I can see his lips moving in reply, but I can't hear him over the roor of the crowd. Come shut the door. Roar of the crowd in the Capitol that they're playing live over the speakers. The hovercraft materializes overhead and two ladders drop. Only there's no way I'm letting go of Peta. I keep one arm around him as I, as I help him up. And we each place a foot on the first rung of the ladder. The electric current freezes us in place. And this time I'm glad because I'm not really sure Peta can hang on for that whole ride. And since my eyes were looking down, I can, I can see that while our muscles are immobile, nothing is preventing the blood from draining out of Peta's leg. Sure enough, the minute the door closes behind us and the current stops, he slumps to the floor unconscious. My fingers are still gripping the back of his jacket so tightly that when they take him away, it tears, leaving me with a fistful of black jacket or black fabric. Doctors in sterile white, mask and glove, already prepped to operate, go into action. Pete is so pale and still on a silver and still on a silver table, tubes and wires springing out of him every which way. And for a moment, I forget we're out of the games, and I see the doctors as just one more threat, one more pack of mutts designed to kill him. Petrified, I lunge for him, but I'm caught and thrust back into another room, and a glass door seals between us. I pound on the glass, screaming my head off. Everyone ignores me except for some capital attendant who appears behind me and offers me a beverage. I slump down on the floor, my face against the door, staring incomprehendingly at the crystal glass in my hand. I see coal filled with orange juice, a straw with a frilly white collar. How wrong it looks in my bloody, filthy hand with its dirt cake nails and scars. My mouth waters at the smell. But I place it carefully on the floor, not trusting anything so clean and pretty. Through the glass, I see the doctors working feverishly on Peta. Their brows crease in concentration. I see the flow of liquids pumping through the tubes, watch a wall of dials and lights that mean nothing to me. I'm not sure, but I think his heart stops twice. It's like being home again when they bring in the hopelessly mangled person from the mine explosion or the woman in her third day of labor or the famished child struggling against pneumonia and my mother in prim. They wear that same face. Why did my door open? Thanks. And my mother and Prim, they wear the same look on their faces. Now is the time to run away to the woods, to hide in the trees until the patient is long gone or and in another part of the scene, the hammers make the coffin. But I'm held here both by the hovercraft walls and the same force that holds the loved ones of the dying. How often I've seen them ringed around our kitchen table and I thought, why don't they leave? Why do they stay to watch? And now I know it's because they ha you have no choice. I startle when I catch someone staring at me from only a few inches away and then realize it's my own face reflecting back in the glass. 
wild eyes, hollow cheeks, my hair in a tangled mat, rabid, feral, mad. No wonder everyone is keeping a safe distance from me. The next thing I know, we've landed back on the roof of the training center, and they're taking PETA, but leaving me behind the door. I start hurling myself against the glass, shrieking, and I think I just catch a glimpse of pink hair. It must be Effie. It has to be Effie coming to my rescue when the needle jabs me from behind. When I wake, I'm afraid to move at first. The entire ceiling glows with a soft yellow light, allowing me to see that I'm in a room containing just my bed. No doors, no windows are visible. The air smells of something sharp and antiseptic. My right arm has several tubes that extend into the wall behind me. I'm naked, but the bedclothes are soothing against my skin. I tentatively lift my left hand above the cover. Not only has it been scrubbed clean, the nails are filed in perfect ovals. The scars from my burns are less prominent. I touch my cheek, my lips, and puckered scar above my eyebrow, and I'm just running my fingers through my silken hair when I freeze. Apprehensively, I ruffle the hair by my left ear. No, it wasn't an illusion. I can, I can hear, hear again. again. I try and I sit up, up, but some, some sort, sort of wide restraining band around my waist keeps me from rising more than a few inches. The physical confinement makes me panic, and I'm trying to pull myself up and wriggle my hips through the band when a portion of the wall slides open and in steps the redheaded Avox girl carrying a tray. The sight of her calms me, and I stop trying to escape. I want to ask her a million questions, but I'm afraid any familiarity would cause her harm. Obviously, Obviously, I am being, being closely, closely monitored. monitored. She sets the tray across my thighs and presses something that raises me to a sitting position. While she adjusts my pillows, I risk one question. I say it out loud as clearly as my rusty voice will allow, so nothing will seem secretive. Did PETA make it? She gives me a nod, and as she slips a spoon into my hand, I feel the pressure of friendship. I guess she did not wish me dead after all, and PETA has made it. Of course he did, with all their expensive equipment here. Still, I hadn't been sure until now. As the A-Box leaves, the door closes noisily after her, and I turn hungrily to the tray. A bowl of clear broth, a small serving of applesauce, and a glass of water. This is it? I think grouchily. Shouldn't my homecoming dinner be a little more spectacular? But I find it's an effort to finish the spare meal before me. My stomach seems to have shrunk to the size of a chestnut. And I have to wonder how long I've been out, because I had no trouble eating a fairly sizable breakfast that last morning in the arena. There's usually a lag of a few days between the end of the competition and the presentation of the victor so that they can put the starving, wounded mess of a person back together again. Somewhere, Senna and Portia will be creating our wardrobe for the public appearances. Hamish and Effie will be arranging the banquet for our sponsors, reviewing the questions for our final interviews. Back home, District 12 is probably in chaos as they try and organize the homecoming celebrations for Pete and me, given that the last one was close to 30 years ago. Home. Prim, Prim and my, and my mother, mother, Gail. Gail. Even, Even the thought of Prim's Prim scruffy old cat cat makes me smile. Soon I will be home. I want to get out of this bed to see Peta and Cinna, to find out more about what's been going on, and why shouldn't I? I feel fine. But as I start to work my way out of the band, I feel a cold liquid seeping into my vein from one of the tubes and almost immediately lose consciousness. This happens on and off for an indeterminate amount of time. My waking, eating, and even though I resist the impulse to try and escape the bed, being knocked out again. I seem to be in a strange, continual twilight. Only a few things register. The redheaded Avex girl has not returned since the feeding. My scars are disappearing. And do I imagine it? Or do I hear a man's voice yelling? Not in the capital accent, but in the rougher cadences of home. And I can't help having a vague, comforting feeling that someone is looking out for me. 
Then finally, the time arrives when I come to, and there's nothing plugged into my right arm. The restraint around my middle has been removed, and I am free to move about. I start to sit up, but I'm arrested by the sight of my hands. The skin's perfection, smooth and glowing. Not only are the scars from the arena gone, but those accumulated over years of hunting have vanished without a trace. My forehead feels like satin, and when I try to find the burn on my calf, there's nothing. I slip my legs out of bed, nervous about how they will bear my weight, and find them strong and steady. Lying at the foot of my bed is an outfit that makes me flinch. It's what all of us tributes wore in the arena. I stare at it as if it has teeth until I remember that, of course, this is what I will wear to greet my team. I'm dressed in less than a minute and fidgeting in front of the wall where I know there's a door, even if I can't see it, when suddenly it slides open. I step into a wide, deserted hall that appears to have no more, no other doors on it, but it must. And behind one of them must be Peta. Now that I'm conscious and moving, I'm growing more and more anxious about him. He must be all right, or the Avox girl would have, wouldn't have said so. But I need to see him for myself. Peta, I call out, since there's no one to ask. I hear my name in response, but it's not his voice. It's a voice that provokes first irritation and then eagerness. Effie. I turn, I turn and see them, and them all waiting, waiting in a big, big chamber, chamber at the, the end of the hall. Effie, Hamish, Hamish, and Cinna. My, my feet take off without hesitation. hesitation. Maybe, Maybe a victor should show more restraint, restraint more superiority, superiority, especially when, when, she show, when, she when she knows this will be on tape, tape but I don't, don't care. care. I, I run, run for them, them and surprise even myself when I launch into Hamish's arms first. When he whispers in my ear, nice job, sweetheart, it doesn't sound sarcastic. Effie's somewhat teary and keeps patting my hair and talking about how she told everyone we were pearls. Cinna just hugs me tight and doesn't say anything. Then I notice Portia is absent and get a bad feeling. Where's Portia? Is she with Peta? He is all right, isn't he? I mean, he's alive, I blurt out. He's fine. Only they want to do your reunion live on the air at the ceremony, says Hamish. Oh, that's all I say? The awful moment of thinking Peta's dead again passes. I guess I'd want to see that myself. Go on, Go on with Cinna. He has he to be has ready, says Hamish. It's a relief to be alone with Cinna, to feel his protective arm around my shoulders as he guides me away from the cameras, down a few passages into an elevator that leads to the lobby of the training center. The hospital then is, a, is far underground, even beneath the gym where the tributes practice tying knots and throwing spears. The windows of the lobby are darkened, and a handful of guards stand on duty. No one else is there to see us cross to the tribute elevator. Our, Our footsteps, footsteps echo in the emptiness, in and when, when we ride up to the 12th floor, the faces of all the tributes who will never return flash across my mind, and there's a heavy, tight place in my chest. When the elevator doors open, Vinia, Flavius, and Octavia engulf me. Talking so quickly and ecstatically, I can't make out their words. The sentiment is clear, though. They are truly thrilled to see me, and I'm happy to see them, too. Although, Although not, not like, like I was, I was to see Cinna. Cinna. It's more, more in the, the way, way one might be glad, glad to see an affectionate, affectionate trio of pets at the end of a particularly, particularly difficult day. day. They, they sweep me into the dining room, room and I get and a real meal. meal. Roast beef and peas and soft rolls. Although, Although my, my portions, portions are still being strictly controlled, controlled because when I ask for seconds, I'm refused. No, no, no. They don't want it all coming back up on the stage, says Octavia. But she secretly slips me an extra roll under the table to let me know she's on my side. We go back to my room, and Cinna disappears for a while as the prep team gets me ready. Oh, they did a full body polish on you, says Flavius enviously. Not a flaw left on your skin. 
But when, when I look, I look at, at my naked body, body in the mirror, mirror all I can, can see is how skinny I am. I mean, I'm sure I was worse when I came out of the arena, but I can easily count my ribs. They take care of the shower settings for me, and they go to work on my hair, nails, and makeup when I'm done. They chatter so continuously that I barely have to reply, which is good, since I don't feel very talkative. It's funny, because even though they're rattling on about the games, it's all about where they were or what they were doing or how they felt when a specified event occurred. I was still in bed. I had just had my eyebrows dyed. I swear I nearly fainted. Everything is about them, not the dying boys and girls in the arena. We don't wallow around in the games this way in District 12. We grit our teeth. Watch because we must and try to get back to business as soon as possible when they're over. To keep from hating the prep team, I effectively tune out most of what they're saying. Cinna comes in with what appears to be an unassuming yellow dress across his arms. Have you given up the whole girl on fire thing, I ask? You tell me, he says, and slips it over my head. I immediately notice the padding over my breasts, adding curves that hunger, that hunger has stolen from my body. My hands go to my chest and I frown. I know, I know, says Cinna, before I can object, object, but the game makers wanted to alter you surgically. Hamish had a huge fight with them over it. This was the compromise. He stops me before I can look at my reflection. Wait, don't forget the shoes. Finia helps me into a pair of flat leather sandals, and I turn to the mirror. I am still the girl on fire. The sheer fabric softly glows. Even the slight movement in the air sends a ripple up my body. By comparison, the chariot costume seems garish. The interview dress to contrive. In this dress, I give the illusion of wearing candlelight. What do you think? Asks Sina. I think it's the best yet, I say. When I manage to pull my eyes away from the flickering fabric, I'm in for something of a shock. My hair is loose, held back by a simple hairband. The makeup rounds and fills out the sharp angles of my face. A clear polish coats my nails. The sleepless dress is gathered at my ribs, not my waist, largely eliminating any help the padding would have given my figure. The hem, the hem falls, falls just to my knees. knees. Without, Without heels, heels, you can see my true stature. stature. I look I very simply like a girl, a young, young one, 14, 14 at the most. most. Innocent, Innocent, harmless. harmless. Yes, yes, it is shocking that Sina has pulled this off when you remember I've just won the games. This is a very calculated look. Nothing Sina designs is arbitrary. I bite my lip trying to figure out his motivation. I thought it'd be something more sophisticated looking, I say. I thought, I thought PETA, PETA would like this better, he answers carefully. PETA? PETA? No, it's no, not it's about PETA. PETA. It's, it's about the capital and the game makers and the audience. audience. Although I do I not understand, understand I, I do I not yet understand Sina's design, design, it's a reminder, reminder the games are not, are not quite, quite finished. finished. And beneath his benign reply, I sense a warning of something he can't even mention in front of his own team. We take the elevator to the level where we train. It's customary for the victor and his or her support team to rise from beneath the stage. First, the prep team, followed by the escort, the stylist, the mentor, and finally the victor. Only this year, with two victors who share both an escort and a mentor, the whole thing has to be rethought. I find myself in a poorly lit area under the stage. A brand new metal plate has been installed to transport me upward. You can still see small piles of sawdust, smell fresh paint, Sina and the prep team peel off to change into their own costumes and take their positions, leaving me alone. In the gloom, I see a makeshift wall about 10 yards away and assume Peta's behind it. The rumbling of the crowd is loud, so I don't notice Hamish until he touches my shoulder. I spring away, startled. Still half in the arena, I guess. Easy. Just me. 
let's have a look at you, Hamish says. I hold out my arms and turn once. Good enough. It's not much of a compliment. But what? I say. Hamish's eyes shift around my musky holding space, and he seems to seems to make a decision. But nothing. How about a hug for luck? Okay. That's an odd request from Hamish. But after all, we are victors. Maybe a hug for luck is in order. Only when I put my arms around his neck, I find myself trapped in his embrace. He begins talking very fast, very quietly in my ear, my hair concealing his lips. Listen up. You're in trouble. Word is the capital's furious about you showing them up in the arena. The one thing they can't stand is being laughed at, and they're the joke of Pan Am, says Hamish. I feel dread coursing through me now, but I laugh as though Hamish is saying something completely delightful because nothing is covering my mouth. So what? Your only defense can be you were so madly in love, you weren't responsible for your actions. Hamish pulls back and adjusts my hairband. Got it, sweetheart? He could be talking about anything now. Got it, I say. Did you tell Peter this? Don't have to, says Hamish. He's already there. But you think I'm not? I say, taking the opportunity to straighten the bright red bow tie Sinna must have wrestled him into. Since when does it matter what I think, says Hamish? Better take our places. He leads me to the metal circle. This is your night, sweetheart. Enjoy it. He kisses me on the forehead and disappears into the gloom. I tug on my skirt, willing it to be longer, wanting it to cover the knocking in my knees. Then I realize it's pointless. My whole body is shaking like a leaf. Hopefully, it'll be put down to excitement. After all, it's my night. The damp, moldy smell beneath the stage threatens to choke me. A cold, clammy sweat breaks out on my skin, and I can't rid myself of the feeling that the board above my head are about to collapse to bury me alive under the rubble. When I left the arena, when the trumpets played, I was supposed to be safe. From then on, for the rest of my life, but if, but what, if what Hamish says, says is true, true and he's got no reason to lie, I've never been in such a dangerous place in my life. It's so much worse than being hunted in the arena. There, I could only die. End of story. But out here, Prim, my mother, Gail, the people of District 12, everyone I care about back home could be punished if I can't pull off the girl-driven crazy by love scenario Hamish has suggested. So I still have a chance, though. Funny, in the arena when I poured out those berries, I was only thinking of outsmarting the game makers, not how my actions would reflect on the capital. But the Hunger Games are their weapon, and you are not supposed to be able to defeat it. So now the capital will act as if they've been in control the whole time, as if they orchestrated the whole event right down to the double suicide. But that will only work if I play along with them. And PETA, PETA will suffer too. If this goes wrong, what, what was it Hamish said, said when I asked if he told Peter the situation? That he had to pretend to be desperately in love? Don't, don't have to. He's, he's already there. Already, already thinking ahead of me in the games again? again? And well aware of the danger we're in? Or already desperately in love? I don't know. I haven't even begun to separate my feelings about Peter. It's too complicated. What I did as part of the games as opposed to what I did out of anger at the Capitol? Or because of how it would be viewed back in District 12? Or simply because it was only the decent thing to do, or what I did because I cared about him. These are questions to be unraveled back home in the peace and quiet of the woods, when no one is watching, not here with every eye upon me. But I won't have that luxury for who knows how long. And right now, the most dangerous part of the Hunger Games is about to begin. Last chapter. You guys ready? Think she can pull it off? I have a lot, a lot of, of faith, faith in uh, Katniss's, Katniss's acting, acting ability, ability here. here.
Okay. okay. The anthem, anthem booms, booms in my, in my ears, ears, and then, and I, then hear I hear Caesar Flickerman greeting the audience. Does he know how crucial it is to get every word right from now on? He must. He will want to help us. The crowd breaks into applause as the prep teams are presented. I imagine Flavius, Vinny, and Octavia bouncing around and taking ridiculous bobbing bows. It's safe. It's a safe bet. They're clueless. Then Effie's introduced. How long she waited for this moment. I hope she's able to enjoy it. Because as misguided as Effie can be, she has a very keen instinct about certain things and must at least suspect we're in trouble. Portia and Senna receive huge cheers, of course. They've been brilliant. Had a dazzling debut. I now understand Senna's choice of dress for me tonight. I'll need to look as girlish and innocent as possible. Haymitch appearance brings a round of stomping that goes on at least five minutes. Well, he's accomplished a first. Keeping not one, not only one, but two tributes alive. What if he hadn't warned me in time? Would I have acted differently? Flaunted the moment with the berries in the capital's face? No, I don't think so. But I could easily have been a lot less convincing than I need to be now. Right now. Because I can feel the plate lifting me up to the stage. Blinding lights. The deafening roar rattles the metal under my feet. Then there's Peta, just a few yards away. He looks so clean and healthy and beautiful. I can hardly recognize him, but his smile is the same whether in mud or in the capital. And when I see it, I take about three steps and fling myself into his arms. He staggers back, almost losing his balance. And that's when I realize the slim metal contraption in his hand is some kind of cane. He writes himself, and we just cling to each other while the audience goes insane. He's kissing me, and all the time I'm thinking, do you know? Do you know how much danger we're in? After about 10 minutes of the Caesar Flickerman taps on his shoulder to continue the show, and Peter just pushes him aside without even glancing at him. The audience goes berserk. Whether he knows it or not, Peter is, as usual, playing the crowd exactly right. Finally, Hamish interrupts us and gives us a good-natured shove towards the victor's chair. Usually, this is a single, ornate chair from which the winning tribute watches a film of the highlights of the games. But since there are two of us, the game makers have provided a plush red velvet couch. A small one. My mother would call it a love seat, I think. I sit so close to Peter that I'm practically on his lap. But one look from Hamish tells me it isn't enough. Kicking off my sandals, I tuck my feet into the side and lean my head against Peter's shoulder. His arm goes around me automatically. And I feel like I'm back in the cave, curled up against him, trying to keep warm. His shirt is made of the same yellow material as my dress. But Porsche has put him in long black pants. No, sand, no sandals either, but a pair of sturdy black boots. He keeps solidly planted on the stage. I wish Sin had given me a similar outfit. I feel so vulnerable in this flimsy dress, but I guess that was the point. Caesar Flickerman makes a few jokes, and then it's time for the show. This will last exactly three hours, and it is a required viewing for all of Pan Am. As the lights dim and the seal appears on the screen, I realize I'm unprepared for this. I do, I do not, not want to watch, watch my 22, 22 fellow tributes, tributes die. die. I saw, I saw enough, enough of them of die the first time. time. My heart, heart starts heart pounding, pounding, and I have a I strong, strong impulse to run. run. How have the other victors faced this alone? alone. During the During highlights, they periodically show the winner's reaction up on the box in the corner of the screen. I think back to earlier years. Some are triumphant, pumping their fists in the air, beating their chest. Most just seem stunned. All I know is that the only thing keeping me on this love seat is Peta, his arm around my shoulder, his other hand claimed by both of mine. Of course, the previous victors didn't have the capital looking for a way to destroy them. Condensing several weeks into three hours is quite a feat, especially when you consider how many cameras were going at once. 
Whoever puts together the highlights has to choose what sort of story to tell. This year, for the first time, they tell a love story. I know Pete and I won, but a disproportionate amount of the time is spent on us. Right from the beginning. I'm glad, though, because it supports the whole crazy and love thing that's my defense for defying the capital. Plus, it means we won't have as much time to linger over the deaths. The first half hour or so is focused on the pre-arena events, the reaping, the chariot ride to the capital, our tra training scores, and our interviews. There's this sort of upbeat soundtrack playing under it that makes it twice as awful because, of course, almost everyone on screen is dead. Once we're in the arena, there's a detailed coverage of the bloodbath, and then the filmmakers basically alternate between shots of tributes dying and shots of us. Mostly PETA, really. There's no question he's carrying this romance thing on his shoulders. Now I see what the audience saw, how he misled the careers about me. Stayed awake the entire night under the tracker jacker tree. Fought Cato to let me escape, and even while he lay in that mud bank, whispered my name in his sleep. I seem heartless in comparison, dodging fireballs, dropping nests, and blowing up supplies until I go hunting for Rue. They play her death in full, the spearing, my failed rescue attempt, my arrow through the boy from District 1's throat, Rue drawing her last breath in my arm, and the song. I get to sing every note of the song. Something inside of me shuts down, and I'm too numb to feel anything. It's like watching complete strangers in another Hunger Games. But I do but I notice that they, that they omit the part where I covered her in flowers. Right, because even that smacks of rebellion. Things pick up for me once they've announced two tributes from the same district can live, and I shout out Peta's name, and then clap my hand over my mouth. If I've seemed indifferent to him earlier, I make up for it now by finding him, nursing him back to health, going to the feast for the medicine, and being very free with my kisses. Objectively, I can see the mutts and Cato's death are as gruesome as ever, but again, I feel it happens to people I've ever met. And then comes the moment with the berries. I can hear the audience hushing one another, not wanting to miss anything. A wave of gratitude to the filmmakers sweeps over me when they end up, when they end not with the announcement of our victory, but with me pounding on the glass door of the hovercraft, screaming Peter's name as they try to revive him. In terms of survival, it's my best moment all night. The anthem's playing yet again, and we rise as President Snow himself takes the stage, followed by a little girl carrying a cushion that holds the crown. There's just one crown, though, and you can hear the crowd's confusion. Whose head will he place it on? Until President Snow gives it a twist, and it separates into two halves. He places the first around Peter's brow with a smile. He's still smiling when he settles the second on my head, but his eyes, just inches from mine, are as unforgiving as a snake's. That's when I know that even though both of us would have eaten the berries, I am to blame for having the idea. I'm the instigator. I'm the one to be punished. Much bowing and cheering follows. My arm is about to fall off from waving when Caesar Flickerman finally bids the audience goodnight, reminding them to tune in tomorrow for the final interviews, as if they have a choice. Peta and I are whisked to the president's mansion for the victory banquet, where we have very little time to eat, as capital officials and particularly generous sponsors elbow one another out of the way as they try to get their picture with us. Face after beaming face flashes by, becoming increasingly intoxicated as the evening wears on. Occasionally, I catch a glimpse of Haymitch, which is reassuring, or President Snow, which is terrifying. But I keep laughing and thanking people and smiling as my picture is taken. The one thing I never do is let go of Peta's hand. The sun is just peeking over the horizon when we straggle back, 
to the 12th, the 12th floor of the training, training center. center. I think and now I'll finally get a word alone with Peta, but Hamish sends him off with Portia to get everything, get something fitted for the interview and personally escorts me to my door. Why can't I talk to him? I ask. Plenty of time for talk when we get home, says Hamish. Go to bed. You're on air. You're on air at two. Despite Hamish's running interference, I'm determined to see Peta privately. After I toss and turn for a few hours, I slip into the hall. My first thought is to check the roof, but it's empty. Even the city streets far below are deserted after the celebration last night. I go back to bed for a while and then decide to go directly to his room. But when I try to turn the knob, I find my own bedroom door has been locked from the outside. I suspect Hamish initially, but then there's a more insidious fear that the capital may be monitoring and confining me. I've been unable to escape since the Hunger Games began, but this feels different, much more personal. This feels like I'm be I've been in prison for a crime and I'm, in I'm awaiting sentencing. I quickly get back in bed and pretend to sleep until Effie Trinket comes to alert me to the start of another big, big, big day. Okay, I don't want to be in the middle of their interview, you guys. So I'm going to stop Okay. You ready, ready for these for interviews? interviews? I have about five, five minutes to eat a bowl of hot grain and stew before the prep team descends. All I have to say is the crowd loved you and it's unnecessary to speak for the next couple of hours. When Cinna comes in, he shoes them out and dresses me in a white gauzy dress and pink shoes. Then he personally adjusts my makeup until I seem to radiate a soft rosy glow. We make, we make idle, idle chit-chat, chit -chat, but, I'm but I'm afraid to ask him anything of real importance because after the incident with the door, I can't shake the feeling that I'm being watched constantly. The interview takes place right down the hall in the sitting room, a space that has been cleared and a love seat has been moved in and surrounded by vases of red and pink roses. There are only a handful of cameras to record the event, no live audience at least. Caesar Flickerman gives me a warm hug when I come in. Congratulations, Katniss. How are you faring? Fine. Nervous, Nervous about the interview, I say. Don't be. We're going to have a fabulous time, he says, giving my cheek a reassuring pat. Not good at talking about myself, I say. Nothing you say will be wrong, he says. And I think, oh, Caesar, if only that were true. But actually, President Snow may be arranging some sort of accident for me as we speak. Then Pete is there looking handsome in red and white, pulling me off to the side. I hardly get to see you. Hamish seems bent on keeping us apart. Hamish is actually bent on keeping us alive, but there are too many ears listening, so I just say, yes, he's gotten very responsible lately. Well, there's just this and we go home. Then he can't watch us all the time, says Peta. I feel a sort of shiver run through me, and there's no time to analyze why, because they're ready for us. We sit somewhat formally on the love seat, but Caesar says, oh, go ahead and curl up next to him if you want. It looked very sweet. So I tuck my feet up, and Peta pulls me in close to him. Someone, Someone couched backwards, and just like that, we're being broadcast live to the entire country. Caesar Flickerman is wonderful, teasing, joking, getting choked up when the occasion presents itself. He and Peta already have the rapport they established that night of the first interview. That's easy banter. So I just smile a lot and try to speak as little as possible. I mean, I have to talk some, but as soon as I can redirect the conversation, as soon as I can, I redirect the conversation back to Peta. Eventually, though, Caesar begins to pose questions that insist on fuller answers. Well, Peta, we know we know from our days in the cave that it was love at first sight for you from, what, age five? Caesar says, from the moment I laid eyes on her, says Peta. But Katniss, what a ride for you. I think the real excitement for the audience was watching you fall for him. When did you realize you were in love with him? Asks Caesar. Oh, that's a hard one. I give a faint, breathy laugh. 
and and looked down down at my hands. Help! Help. Well, Well, I know when it hit me. me. The The night night when you you shouted out his name name from that that tree, tree, says Caesar. Thank you, Caesar, I think. And then go with his idea. Yes, I think that was it. I mean, until that point, I just tried not to think about what my feelings might be, honestly, because it was so confusing, and it only made things worse if I actually cared about him. But then, in the tree, everything changed, I say. Why do you think that was, urges Caesar? Maybe because for the first time... There was a, there was a chance, chance I could, I could keep, keep him, him, I say. Behind, Behind a cameraman, camera, I see Hamish give a sort of huff with relief, relief and, I and I know I've said the right thing. thing. Caesar, Caesar pulls out a handkerchief and, and has to take a moment because he's so moved. I can I see Peter press, press his forehead into my temple and, and he asks, So, now that you've got me, what are you going to do with me? I turn to him, put you somewhere you can't get hurt. And when he kisses me, people in the room actually sigh. For Caesar, this is a natural place to segue into the ways we did get hurt in the arena. From burns burns, to stings to wounds, wounds. but it's not not until we get around to the mutt mutt that I forget forget I'm on camera camera. when When Caesar asks PETA how his his new leg is working working out. out. New New leg, leg, I say, and I can't help help reaching out and pulling up the bottom of PETA's pants. Oh no, I whisper, taking in the metal and plastic device that has replaced his flesh. No one told you? asks Caesar gently. I shake my head. I haven't had the the chance, says Peter with a slight shrug. shrug. It's It's my my fault, I say, because I used that tourniquet. tourniquet. Yes, it's It's your your fault fault I'm alive, alive, says Peter. He's right, says Caesar. He'd have bled to death for sure without it. I guess this is true, but I can't help feeling upset about it. To the extent that I'm afraid I might cry, and then I remember everyone in the country is watching me, so I just bury my face in Peter's shirt. It takes him a couple of minutes to coax me back out. Because it's it's better better in the the shirt shirt, where no one one can see me. me. And when I do come out, Caesar backs off questioning me so I can recover. In fact, he pretty much leaves me alone until the berries come up. Katniss, I know you've had a shock, but I've got to ask. The moment when you pulled out those berries, what was going on in your mind? He says, I take a long pause before I answer, trying to collect my thoughts. This is the crucial moment where I either challenge the capital or went, or went so crazy at the idea of losing PETA that I can't be held responsible for my actions. It seems to call for a big dramatic speech, but all I get out is one almost inaudible sentence. I don't know. I just couldn't bear the thought of being without him. PETA, anything to add? Asks Caesar. No, I think that goes for both of us, he says. Caesar, Caesar signs off and it's over. Everyone's laughing and crying and hugging, but I'm still not sure until I reach Hamish. Okay, I whisper. Perfect, he answers. I go back to my room to collect a few things and find there's nothing to take but the Mockingjay pin Madge gave me. Someone returned it to my room after the games. They drive us through the streets in a car with blackened windows and the trains waiting for us. We barely have time to say goodbye to Sinna and Portia, although we'll see them in a few months when, our tour, when we tour the districts for a round of victory ceremonies. It's the capital's way of reminding people that the Hunger Games never really go away. We'll be given a a lot of useless plaques, and everyone will have to pretend they love us. The train begins moving, and we're plunged into the night until we clear the tunnel, and I take my first free breath since the reaping. Effie is accompanying us back, and Hamish too, of course. We eat an enormous dinner and settle into silence in front of the television to watch a replay of the interview. With the capital growing farther away every second, I begin to think of home, of Prim and my mother, of Gail. I excuse myself to change out of my dress and into a plain shirt and pants. As I slowly, thoroughly wash the makeup from my face, I put my hair in its braid. 
I began transforming back into myself, Katniss Everdeen, a girl who lives in the seam, hunts in the woods, trades in the hob. I stare in the mirror as I try to remember who I am and who I am not. By the time I join the others, the pressure of Peta's arm around my shoulders feel alien. When the train makes a brief stop for fuel, we're allowed to go outside for some fresh air. There's no longer any need to guard us. Pete and I walk down along the track, hand in hand, and I can't find anything to say now that we're alone. He stops to gather a bunch of wildflowers for me. When he presents them, I work hard to look pleased, because he can't know that the pink and white flowers are the tops of wild onions, and only remind me of the hours I've spent gathering them with Gail. Gail. The idea of seeing Gail in a matter of hours makes my stomach churn. But why? I can't quite frame it in my mind. I only know that I feel like I've been lying to someone who trusts me, or more accurately, to two people. I've been getting away with it up to this point because of the games, but there will be no games to hide behind back home. What's wrong? Peter asks. Nothing, I answer. We continue walking past the end of the train, out where even I'm fairly sure there are no cameras hidden in the scrubby bushes along the track. Still no words come. Hamish startles me when he lays a hand on my back. Even now, in the middle of nowhere, he keeps his voice down. Great job, you two. Just keep it up in the district until the cameras are gone. We should be okay. I watch him head back to the train, avoiding Peter's eyes. What's he mean? Peter asks me. It's the capital. They didn't like our stunt with the berries, I blurt out. What? What are you talking about, he says. It seems it seemed too rebellious. So Hamish has been coaching me through the last few days. So I didn't make it worse, I say. Coaching you, but not me, says Peta. He knew you were smart enough to get it right, I say. I didn't know there was anything to get right, says Peta. So, what you're saying is, these last few days, and then I guess back in the arena, that was some strategy you two worked out? No, I mean, I couldn't even talk to him in the arena, could I, I stammer? But you knew what he wanted you to do, didn't you, says Peta. I bite my lip. Katniss? He drops my hand and I take a step, as if to catch my balance. It was all for the games, Peta says. How how you acted? Not all of it, I say tightly holding onto my flowers. Then how much? No, forget that. I guess the real question is, what's going to be left when we get home, he says. I don't know. The closer we get to District 12, the more confused I get. I say. He waits for further explanation, but none's forthcoming. Well, let me know when you work it out, he says. And the pain in his voice is palpable. I know my ears, my ears are healed because even with the rumble of the engine, I can hear every step he takes back to the train. By the time I've climbed aboard, Peta has disappeared into his room for the night. I don't see him the next morning either. In fact, the next time he turns up, we're pulling into District 12. He gives me a nod, his face expressionless. I want to tell him that he's not being fair, that we were strangers, that I did what it took to stay alive to keep us both alive in the arena. That I can't explain how things are with Gail because I don't know myself. That it's no good loving me because I'm never going to get married anyway. And he just end up hating me later instead of sooner. That if I do have feelings for him, it doesn't matter because I'll never be able to afford the kind of love that leads to a family with children. And how can he? How can he after what we've just been through? I also want to tell him how much I already miss him. But that wouldn't be fair on my part. So we just stand there silently watching our grimy little station rise up around us. Through the window, I can see the platforms thick with cameras. Everyone will be eagerly watching our homecoming. Out of the corner of my eye, I see Peta extend his hand. I look at him unsure. One more time for the audience, he says. 
His voice voice isn't isn't angry. angry. It's It's hollow. hollow. Which is worse. Already, the boy with the bread is slipping away from me. I take his hand, holding on tightly, preparing for the cameras, and dreading the moment when I will finally have to let go.